Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts, so we're excited about that. <laughs> First time I've done the new intro, it's very exciting. So I'm Kristen Pugh, I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hey, hello again. <laughs> and today we are joined by Rory Johnston for a special episode. Uh, we're going to be looking at decarbonization, focusing specifically on sort of the energy sector and how that's changing. Uh, Rory is the founder of Commodity Context, and uh, I'll let you introduce yourself, Rory. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kristen. So Commodity Context is, at this point right now, it's a, it's a budding research uh, platform focused on commodities uh, with the aim of bringing bank-level kind of capital markets e energy and commodities research to a much broader audience. And I can like just to kind of briefly dwell into what that is, a lot there's a lot of really, really high caliber, really, really detailed granular research that goes on in the financial markets, banks, investment banks, traders, et cetera. And they all have a amazing access to all of this research, all of this data. Um, and I think it's really valuable, but I also find that a lot of those individuals and those institutions are not very public facing and open with that data and those messages. So my, my hope here is, <laughs> my, my hope is I, I worked for six years covering and leading commodities research at Scotiabank in the economics department. Um, and I left at the beginning of 2020, just before COVID hit, uh, both to start a family and to uh, join a family office, uh, investing more broadly in public equities and doing some private equity stuff. But as part of that, it's given me the opportunity to start my own uh, writing again. Uh, and that, again, kind of happened organically because, as I was saying, there aren't that many people that talk about this stuff publicly. I, and, and I think in, in a really informed, objective, nonpartisan way, because we could talk about this later, but it's, you know, on, on both the left and the right, it's a, it's a very, very polarizing uh, subject, outlook. And I think people both bring a lot of their own kind of uh, political priors, but a lot of their own data. Uh, like the data doesn't even match itself. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to bring together people and expertise that I know on the left and the right into something in the middle that can hopefully help provide a little bit of context uh, to this broader kind of, and, and obviously of like the top level of importance for the coming decades, for the global economy and for the climate. Yeah, and I think you're a really great person to like demystify some of this stuff for us because obviously uh, you're a very engaging speaker, um, but also Rory's like my only friend that I know that will just text me and be like, did you see what copper prices are doing today? <laughs> no, no, Rory, I didn't. <laughs> it's a long and storied history, I'm sure. But I, and again, I think that, um, and as we kind of progress through this conversation, I think that we're seeing a bunch of really interesting things happening. We're seeing obviously... Kind of countries making unprecedented commitments uh, towards climate mitigation policies. Uh, obviously, those are not sufficient yet to reach a net zero future. But I think the longer that that delay happens, and I think this is obviously well known, the longer that delay happens, the more steep that transition needs to be. And I think that the lack of understanding uh, that both sides, and I'm just going to keep referring to both sides, and I'm broadly meaning kind of, let's say, pro-fossil fuels and pro-renewables, anti-fossil fuels, just kind of broad bucket camps. But 
Both those sides bring up tremendous amount of expertise, but I think and I, and I feel that they often speak past each other, uh, and I witness it very in, in very real terms. So I have put myself very much in the middle to get kind of equally yelled at at by both sides uh, and make absolutely no one happy. <laughs> but I think what we're seeing right now is that is that um, when big things happen, COVID's a great example. Um, governments kind of go about this unprecedented um, policy push along a whole like a whole suite of vectors. And the politics of it are just absolutely toxic. And I think what we're seeing here is a very, very accelerated version of what we're going to see of like the slow motion train wreck over the coming decades as we try <laughs> and not to be not to be super optimistic about it. But, but I, I feel like I, I earnestly do see the kind of polar ends of this conversation on both sides. And it just deeply dispirits me um, because I think that you know, on one side, we have we have uh, a group of people who legitimately do not see climate change as an existential worry. Uh, they see it as a distraction. Uh, you see conversation pivot and focus around a lot of things like energy poverty, which is legitimately something that does need to be broached along with all other forms of poverty. Uh, but on the other side of things, you see people that kind of will you know see absolutely no value brought by the current fossil fuel system. In fact, will often just look at the negatives, not just from the emission side, but from the local political uh, corruption, pollution, tailings ponds, everything in between. Um, but, but I think that, you know, there, the fossil fuels have, have allowed our society to become and operate and scale the way it has. And we just simply physically cannot switch it on a dime without very, very kind of deleterious uh, impacts that I always worry are going to prompt kind of insurmountable political blowback because all of this is going to be happening through politics. Yeah, I'm curious if you could dig into that a little bit more. Um, so what are some of the challenges with switching over our energy system right away? Like what would we need to consider as we're trying to decarbonize? Yeah, I mean, a, a great example of this is what we're seeing in natural gas markets this year. So for those that aren't aware, natural gas prices, particularly in Europe and Asia uh, through liquefied natural gas markets, are breaking all-time records. Um, and there's a whole, for a whole host of things, and commodities across the board have kind of gone truly screwy through COVID uh, because commodity markets are very, very slow moving, typically. And when you kind of hard stop the global economy, and you kind of bind up all these supply chains, you have very, very dramatic and acute mismatches in supply and demand. First, on the downside, where, you know, oil prices go negative in April of 2020. Um, and then they go absolutely gangbusters after that. We're, right now, we're sitting at over, over, over $85 a barrel for Brent, which is around its highest point. Uh, Brent is the global uh, the global benchmark for crude oil, um, and that's around the highest point since 2014. Lumber prices um, hit multiples of all time highs. Copper re reached all time highs, and natural gas, <laughs> I think, saw yeah, copper again. Uh, so, and and natural gas uh, did this, but to a wholly different kind of scale and level. And you have all this other stuff that's going on, on top of it. So part of it is that, and you hear this with renewables all the time, the problem of intermittency, the problem of, of uh, you know, it, it's not as dispatchable in the, in the industry lingo as, you know, let's say a natural gas power plant or a hydro dam or something like can that. You, where you can can you break that apart a little bit? Uh, what does intermittency mean? <laughs> yeah, so basically, I mean, the, the classic cliche here is that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. Uh, so you need to balance that load because the energy grid operates on a like we hear about supply chains working just in time, 
Electricity grids are literally just in time, literally like millisecond to millisecond <laughs> balancing. Um, and you need to be able to fill, fulfill that demand. Otherwise, you end up with brownouts and blackouts, which is when these, we, these systems fail. That's typically what's happening is something somewhere either broke, uh, transmission line, something like that, or you had a massive mismatch and the entire grid just kind of lost uh, kind of stability. So in, in this context, um, in what we've seen, particularly in Europe, was, you know, for a lot of last year, uh, we had very, very prolonged periods where there wasn't a lot of wind in particular. Um, so there was this challenge that solar, you're used to, obviously, you know, day and night intermittency. So you, you, you can match it really nicely to, you know, as your, as your kind of day rises, particularly in the summer, uh, you know, the higher the sun is in the sky, the more solar energy is coming in. Typically, the hotter it is, so you need more air conditioning. That matches really nicely. Wind is all over the place through the day, which is great if you can balance it with other systems. But if you have a prolonged period where, you, let's say, you have a really, really hot, dank summer like we saw in Europe uh, and Asia, which, which happened to also – because so you, you saw – air conditioning demand, you know, spike at the same time that you saw power demand because this dank, hot, you know, air really wasn't blowing very much. So you had this issue where you had more and more gas demand to offset that lack of wind. Uh, but at the same time, because of COVID and a bunch of other things, you had gas supply that was basically lower than it should have been. Uh, what you saw in a lot of these facilities was you saw really, really big um, uh, in 2021, you saw really, really acute maintenance periods because typically people you know basically people typically think when you turn a plant off like for maintenance that you know you have less people there it's actually the opposite typically you have more people there because you turn it off to basically take it apart and fix it and maintain it and everything else so in 2020 a lot of a lot of uh, producers and facilities didn't undergo that maintenance because they basically didn't want to fly people in from all over Europe or in Canada through you know flying people from you know the east coast into into Fort McMurray you didn't want to kind of gather those people up and put them all in a facility so you delayed that maintenance so all that maintenance was coming due just at this time where we actually needed a bunch more supply. And you had all these other kind of coincidental problems that creeped up. We had the massive polar vortex uh, in North America that, that coincided with that um, uh, Texas winter storm, which had the, again, these systems are very vulnerable, particularly when they're not weatherized. You had natural, you had demand spike because it was really, really cold and power plants were shutting off everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, it was so cold that natural gas wells were basically freezing in place and stopping producing. So you had all these systems, all, anyway, all this to say. Yeah, that was one of the myths, though, because they blamed uh, wind turbines, but... <laughs> they did. And, and basically what you saw was that all, I think there was the big photo of like frozen wind turbines, which was a problem. Um, it would be great if they weren't frozen. Um, but you, you basically saw like a bunch of these systems fail. It wasn't just renewables. It wasn't just gas. I think by volume of power, of basically lost capacity, gas was the largest. But I think the problem overall was that the system just wasn't resilient. And I think in Texas's case in particular, this is because they have a very unique special Texas grid and it didn't have the amount of weatherized. And they, you know, it, fair enough, aren't ready for like blizzard conditions down around Houston. Um, so they weren't ready for it. And but that's a problem because, you know, as you guys talk about all the time, the change in climate doesn't just mean all the time hotter. It's also going to mean acute periods of colder like we see in those breakdowns of the polar vortex. So that must be so frustrating for you then, because, <laughs> you know, you know, you're like, this is only a problem that's going to get worse as weather becomes more unpredictable. Yeah. So it doesn't really whether it's renewable or whether it's fossil fuel, it's going to be harder to maintain that power grid. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I, the power grid is a very immediate case of this, but, you know, natural gas markets, oil markets, they all work on various legs, similar kind of trying to match supply and demand. And I think the challenge that we're seeing is as these systems, as weather, as global climate becomes more uh, volatile, these disruptions are going to increase. So you really do need, you're going to need to not just replace fossil fuels. And I think getting to the exact question of what this transition could look like and what to watch out for, um, we're going to need to put tens, hundreds of billions of dollars into existing fossil fuel infrastructure to keep it ready. It, you know, even if we don't want to produce with it, we need to make sure that those gas plants, for instance, and those gas pipelines and supply are available for a, a month where the, where the uh, wind doesn't blow. Because even in kind of the more built out scenarios around a kind of a zero carbon energy grid, it's really expensive to have battery supply for a whole month for a whole country. Typically, you're going to be trying to you know, discharge and recharge these on a daily or weekly or kind of cyclical basis, but it, it's not as good as kind of like big chunks of kind of power switching. So I think in that kind of situation, you're going to need gas, at least in the short term. And by short term here, I mean, kind of 20, you know, 10, 20 years, honestly, you're going to need the ability to turn on gas supply when we need to heat homes. Because in Europe right now, there's legitimate concern that Europe can may run out of natural gas this winter that has that has slightly lessened in concern but you also have on top of this you have the immediate kind of physical security side and reliability and then i think you know kristen and i went to you know geopolitics school together you also have the <laughs> geopolitical and security angle here because the main supplier of gas to russia sorry of, of gas to europe is russia which obviously has a whole host of kind of additional security issues at play when you're basically relying on moscow to keep homes from freezing through europe through the winter that's a lot of leverage and i think that we in an ideal situation we can transition the economy to be more reliable and resilient against these types of, 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 of pieces of leverage and not in the meantime say, okay, we're not going to invest in any natural gas in Europe at all, but we're going to transition. But in that kind of 20-year period while we're transitioning, we're going to rely on Moscow for 80% of our gas. That doesn't seem like a great answer to this. So I think <laughs> but the challenge is that it's also very, it's, all, it's all really not politically popular to, particularly in Europe right now, say we need to invest it, you know, state resources and natural gas grids. That's really unpopular because they've been talking, I think, rightly, that we need to transition this whole time. Well, yeah. And I mean, it does pose a problem to build a bunch of infrastructure you're locking in for 30 years when the IPCC says we need to decarbonize by 2030, doesn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> And it looks like such a, such a sunk cost because you know, like, okay, we're going to spend all of this money, we're going to build all this infrastructure, and then in 30 years, we're going to have to stop using it. Yeah. And, and I totally get that. And I think that I think the unfortunate reality here is that we're going to need sunk infrastructure. We're going to need infrastructure that never makes its full economic life side, you know, payoff. And I think that's the challenge is I think that that's where I think the government governments need to step in here, because this is something that particularly along the policy, you know, angles that governments are kind of going down. Um, the private sector is going to be very hesitant to do this. Uh, because they're worried about, you know, stranded assets, just like everyone else's. Uh, but I do think it's like, you know, there's, you know, the example would be like a strategic petroleum reserve. I think there's a good argument that, let's say, you know, the European Union or member states uh, invest in some kind of strategic natural gas reserve or strategic natural gas production, like, let's say, you know, the Netherlands or Norway or, or one of the one of the hydrocarbon producing nations of the EU can invest in spare production capacity like is maintained through OPEC that is only utilized in emergencies to offset either, you know, 
Moscow being problematic or the wind just suddenly stopped blowing for a month, which, as, as we were saying, could actually be something that happens more frequently as we go forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess my question is, um, why not put that investment into other sorts of base energy like hydropower or even nuclear? Ooh, or we could research fusion. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, a, I, I'm very much like an energy maximalist here. Like, I definitely think that we should have more of all of it. And that's basically because, like, again, I think it mostly comes down to it doesn't make economic sense until it makes the most economic sense. And it basically, you have one of these crises, and all of a sudden, all of your economic break-evens go out the window. Because if you had the ability to sell into the grid for this particular period, well, you can make up a year's worth of economic loss to fill in these kind of acute periods of of, of mismatch. But I, like, I totally feel you. It's it, The problem is, is that it's there are no palatable options. And I think that we should be pouring more money into you know, nuclear and uh, geothermal and all of these other things that I think are going to need to be a part of a flexible, resilient grid. But most of the most of the policy focus and most of the money right now is just building more of the same wind and solar, which is a problem here because it's not it's not the most diversified system. And, and it's a system that is actually correlated with itself. So if you have a country that does a lot of wind and, you know, all the wind in the country basically stops for a while, like a month, that's the problem. <laughs> and, we, and we need something to offset it because we, we can't just not, you know, we can't just cut back, you know, national electricity demand by 20% for a month. The economy would break. And it did. And I think the European <laughs> economy is breaking. You saw factories idled just because they literally were burning money every every minute they were open. Yeah, I'm I guess I'm curious. Um... So I, I think I understand that in the European context, but in the Canadian context, like if you look outside of Alberta, we already have quite, you know, non-fossil fuel energy grids, or at least for electricity. So couldn't we just start to switch heating over to electric and, you know, kind of be fine? I do think, I think, I think that will be a big part of it. Um, like for instance, the, the movement towards home heating with heat pumps rather than natural gas boilers will be a massive and important part of this. But particularly in Canada, I mean, Canada, I mean, Alberta is a great example. You saw negative 40 degrees this past, you know, you know, cold spell. No heat pump in the world is going to be able to keep up with that. So a lot of these systems are also going to require, I mean, I remember looking into this for my house, it, even in Toronto, where it's not going to be especially cold. Um, heat pumps alone, in many cases, at their current state, and again, all of this stuff's going to advance, and I think going to make all of this stuff much more viable in the future. But as it currently exists, it would cost a tremendous amount more money, and you'd still probably need a redundant kind of backup natural gas system on those days where it drops below you know, negative 15, negative 20 degrees Celsius. And I think that's actually a great example on a micro level of, I think, the redundancy we need at a macro level, which is the system, we should be using a heat pump 80% of the time. And the challenge is right now, because of the way the overlap feels uneconomical, like I was just describing, instead we opt to use a natural gas boiler 100% of the time. But we actually need both. And I think that's the challenge here is it's actually, it's actually more than twice as expensive to have both. And that's the challenge is that we need, but we need both. <laughs> I actually don't understand how heat pumps work. So can you explain that? To you me? know, I'm not an expert either, but, but broadly it deals with, it deals with basically, um, ex it, it deals with manipulating the temperature differentials between a house and outside. And you can actually, for instance, even heat a house uh, if it's warmer in the house than it is outside. And again, I'm not an expert on how it works. Now I, now I should probably go read more now that I've been asked. It sounds so fancy. <laughs> 
but but I do but I do know it's it, it it's kind of like an air conditioner except more efficient and it kind of does both cooling and heating. So in many cases, I think it, as I understand it, um, a heat pump would be sufficient for most of your cooling for all or almost all of your cooling needs and most of your heating needs, but not all of them. And in many cases, um, when you're talking about electric. Even the the like the net carbon impact on some of this, it's cheaper to use, or even it's it's more emissions efficient in, in many cases to use natural gas because it's so much more efficient to use natural gas to heat a house versus let's say old school kind of resistance electric heating, which is actually like very it's basically like you know you, your little um, kind of space heaters, which are actually very very inefficient with how they use energy. It's basically it's almost like uh, heating your house with an incandescent light bulb which just doesn't actually seem <laughs> that efficient in the scheme of things. No, it's true. I guess the question is like, if it's all hydro, how much does wasting energy matter? Probably still some, I don't know. <laughs> and, and even in Ontario's case, you know, you do have predominantly nuclear. You've also got kind of an extra 20% or so. And I mean, it's been a little while since I've looked at the uh, Ontario grid specifically, but ballpark, you've got an extra kind of 20, 20% of hydro. And then you've got a smattering of wind and solar, but then the rest of it and the, and the most flexible part of it is still natural gas. Is That's the part, particularly during the summers when we see our peak uh, demand with air conditioning, um, you see most of that kind of peaking demand is, is met by these really flexible natural gas pl uh, power plants. So right now, our, our highest demand is in the summer for cooling. Uh, but if we switched everyone over to heat pumps, all of a sudden, you would see the, the, the demand shift to winter. Uh, so you would need that same kind of natural gas peaking in either situation, unless you had a really, really big overbuild of batteries that could serve that same peaking uh, requirement. But again, it's, it's the nice thing about fossil fuels and is the chemistry of them. They are effectively chemical batteries. So what we're trying to do with engineering batteries, hydrocarbons have done naturally, just that that's how they work. They basically are chemical energy until you burn them and then they turn into kind of actual useful energy. So in many cases, it's hard to beat fossil fuels at their own game because they're so energy dense and so portable. It's like, you know, even, even with the fast chargers for a Tesla, you can't match the pace of energy transfer of just filling up a gas tank. Because the amount of energy that's pouring through that that gas nozzle is actually mind blowing. Like you you hear like the super Tesla superchargers, they they take something in the ballpark of like a hundred or a thousand houses when they're on, just in terms of that mo the power draw at that moment, and that's still like an order of magnitude slower than filling up your car with gasoline, which is just like the actual energy differences and the densities are mind blowing, and and I think illustrative of why the system is so hard to change over. Because we've got, if it wasn't just for those you know, darn carbon dioxide and climate change, it's a really, really, really great system. Um, and that's the challenge. <laughs> well, but it sounds like it's so efficient for the same reason that it's cooking the planet. So. <laughs> it is 100%. It is 100%, right? Um, I think this is the challenge. Is like, is like how, do you, how do you, you know, leverage the best parts of the fossil fuel system and the existing infrastructure. Because again, it's not like 80% of global energy is still fossil fuels in some, in some form or another. So how do you take the best of that system and maintain the resiliency of the existing system while also pouring literally trillions of dollars into trying to go the polar opposite way? And I think it's, what's hard is that it, it, there's like a, a, a policy cognitive dissonance 
Whereas you don't want to put money into the system you're trying to leave. But if you don't do that, you risk that system becoming more fragile and then risking the political consensus you've built in order to actually get the motion to decarbonize in the first place. And that's, I think, when I was seeing Europe, that's, that's the only thing I was worried about was that, you know, you'd, you'd see some kind of backlash against, you know, green parties and green policies uh, because they're, I think, a bit rightly, but mostly wrongly, uh, there was this big kind of push that, you know, oh, this was caused by ESG or this was caused by kind of uh, demonization of fossil fuels. I don't think it was explicitly, but I do think that there's a reason that Europe had a gas crisis and North America didn't. Because North America has a really, really robust allowing natural gas production system. So we were, you know, our gas prices actually reached like decade highs as well because of that LNG connect, but it was still like six times lower than the price we saw in Europe. So I read a book on decarbonization and one of the points that the author was making was like, you should try to increase the, the price of natural gas relative to renewables if you want renewables to succeed. But you don't want to raise it so much that uh, coal becomes a thing that people are using again. hundred percent, hundred percent, and a great and a great way to do that structurally is through is through carbon taxation because you know car, the carbon footprint of a unit of coal energy is always going to be higher than that of natural gas. But what you saw in Europe was, and again, I think carbon taxes are a great example where theoretically you would move that onus, that kind of economic incentive to the demand side. You you make demand comparables more or less attractive, whereas what we saw in Europe was a supply side issue. So you actually saw even with the carbon differential and carbon prices in, in Europe and the carbon trading scheme uh, also rose to all time highs, even with all time high carbon prices and kind of all those other issues, coal was actually more economically plausible in many instances. So you actually saw in many cases, you know, coal use skyrocket. Really what you don't want, and I think <laughs> no. a great example of the unintended consequences of how some of these systems, like not having enough of, you know, the least emitting fossil fuel pushes you more into the worst fossil fuel because of that kind of, again, it's it's easier just to open up an old coal, coal power plant and just throw some coal into it than it is to build a brand new wind farm and connect it to a grid. It's just not going to happen as quickly. I have a, I have maybe a really stupid question, so forgive there me. There are no but... stupid questions here. This is a very, very <laughs> silly space. <laughs> okay, great. Well, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it sounds like a lot of the issue with the power grid is like not having enough of something when you need it. <laughs> Could we not just share? So like a country that has lots of solar can give their solar to the country that's lost their wind power for a month and then vice versa? Like, is that a thing that we're working towards? And is is that a thing that would make things better? I don't know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And that's actually how the current grid often works, um, particularly in a place like North America. You've basically got an East Coast grid and a West Coast grid. Uh, and then you've got the Texas grid. Um, and part of the problem in the Texas example is that it actually doesn't have the same interconnections with the other sides. So you aren't actually able to take in power uh, from those other places when you need it most. Uh, Europe, uh, you know, the, the classic example here would be like so what, what you'd call like some kind of European super grid, where you would have everything from like North Sea uh, kind of deep offshore wind turbines and like really, really big, massive wind turbines connected through the same grid to Algerian solar and kind of have this system because again, it was mostly not windy in the UK. There was wind elsewhere, but it was mostly an issue in the UK. Uh, and again, around the North Sea. So theoretically you would be able to share that. And again, part of that is happening. 
And part of it already does happen, but we definitely need more of it. Um, but it's going to be really, really hard to say link Europe and North America, which is what you would eventually really love is some kind of global grid where you could literally load match all over the planet and have ultra high voltage power lines basically going around everywhere, connecting these grids together. But that's really, really challenging technically, uh, economically, and politically. And is it just because like you lose energy when you're transporting it over distances or what What makes it so uh, tricky? Yeah, so you, you do lose, you, you you have transmission loss. The, the nice thing about it's inversely related to the voltage. So you, if you push up the voltage, you push down the, the, the loss. So typically what you'll have is this is when you have transformers and stuff basically bumping up or down the voltage, you're basically bumping it up uh, as high as you can get it to put on those massive transmission lines so that you have the least possible uh, kind of uh, transmission loss. And then you'd bring it back down to something that like consumers could use because otherwise it would, you know, blow your house up. <laughs> gotcha. So is the challenge just building like those transmission lines to link different places? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you try to imagine, I mean, you would basically, you would either drape it across the Atlantic Ocean or like, like it's really, I mean, it's difficult conceptually to figure out and obviously extremely expensive. But I do think that like in a hundred years, this is probably, we're going to have much more of these interconnected grids because we're going to have things like, you know, geothermal and solar. And you're going to have like this specialization because most of these uh, renewable power sources are extremely localized based on where it's windiest or where it's sunniest or where the where it's closest to heat pockets in the earth or whatever. Um, so I think I, being able to kind of arbitrage that and bring it together in a system is, is part of this challenge. The thing that fossil fuels make easy is you don't need plugs. It's just you kind of carry a, you know, a jerry can of, of fuel, and that's basically the equivalent of a transmission line. You just need the Suez not to be blocked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, 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 you know, block, block canals are always a problem. <laughs> when you mentioned the uh, overseas transmission line, I was thinking about uh, Kyla when you were talking about those kite boats last uh, last episode. Oh, that was Robbie, I think. Oh, yeah, was kite it? Kite boats? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they're looking at bringing back sailing shipping. Roy, you've heard of this. You're nodding. <laughs> I have seen it. I have seen it. it really, really, really cool. Um, like these massive kind of very, very cool sails. And they're like ultra modern. Like it's like it's a big, you know, a big steel sail or or some kind of, you know, uh, plastic membrane or something. Uh, but it's very, very cool. And I think all of this stuff, any, I, I just love, I love all of the creativity that's coming out of this because it's going to take like a thousand different innovations to make this system work because it's whereas the fossil fuel system is very it's complicated but it relative to the uh, level of kind of dancing you need to do in a kind of a futuristic kind of pure you know net zero grid it's very 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 simple um i think it's you know that you know i think part of the challenge is governments uh, having the capability of executing on such a complex system because so far not all of the execution has been awe-inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> like a great example of this, and I think, you know, the classic thing that hurts my brain is, you know, following Fukushima and Germany shutting down all of its nuclear plants and replacing them by starting up a bunch of coal plants, which is just like, it's such a challenge that that just is a problem. And, and, and also you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had nearly the level of dependence on natural gas 
you had all those nuclear power plants still operating. So you 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 basically kind of go fits and starts moving between the politically expedient path towards decarbonization, whereas the reality is much more of a kind of a technocratic slog, honestly. Yeah, I, the idea of shutting down nuclear power plants is kind of like, I don't know if I'm on board with making more of them. I'm kind of on the fence on that. But to shut down ones that have, you've already built, you know what I mean? Like, they're already there. Just use them. I think, I think nukes, nukes will also undergo a big renaissance in how we think about them. You know, the, the, you know, the big shift now is small modular reactors or... Like the darling of the Canadian government. Small it is, it reactors. is, it is, it is. <laughs> We need a good outlet for our uranium, Kristen. <laughs> yeah. Saskatchewan's like, yes. <laughs> um, I am curious, though, like just to go back to the um, integrating the grids question. There's something I don't really understand. I've heard like people in sort of like tech bro spaces talk about trading different sources of energy and being able to like certify that you've gotten one from a green source, even if you're trading across the grid. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, because I don't really understand it. If you do know what I'm talking about, please tell us how it works. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm definitely an expert on, on these systems, uh, but I've seen a lot of, I've seen the same thing applied in the oil market, which is you'd, you know, you'd register a barrel of crude produced at a certain location with a certain chemical makeup and a certain kind of carbon intensity of production. And you'd like put it on the blockchain and there would be this kind of, you know, Ethereum linked contracts that, you know, uh, provide this sense of kind of due diligence, if you will. And I do think that it would be great if we could get to a stage where this was done at scale. Um, I feel most of the, again, my expertise is not the power grid. It's much more the kind of crude oil market in particular. But just to kind of draw a parallel there, you have seen uh, various cargoes that have claimed, you know, you sell a million barrels of crude in a cargo and you claim that it's carbon neutral because you've bought, you know, carbon offsets from somewhere. Um, and I think depending on, I mean, we can, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of loops in these, in this various carbon offsets. Uh, and I probably would, would assume that, you know, 15 cents a ton is probably not enough of a carbon offset to really count uh, in this particular uh, shipment I was thinking about. But I think that's the way it's going to increasingly go once we have a platform that allows for that kind of data to be readily accessible. Part of the challenge is that energy systems are all, it's already a data mess and it'd be very, very hard. I would love it as like a mass consumer of data because it would give me so much more interesting information to work with. And it would be a great way of, of injecting additional ways for the market to automatically price these externalities. Because right now, it's re the definition of a commodity market in most instances is that you can't tell one from the other, that like, they actually are, they're commoditized. You, they are indistinguishable except for a kind of a variety of little physical characteristics that are usually benchmarked. So it's, it would be very interesting, but it would, fundamentally, it would fundamentally change the way commodity markets work because an apple would no longer be an apple. It would be like, a, it would be, you know, a Gala and a Honeycrisp. And, you know, you already have these grades, but then you have like even more fracturing down that definitional system, which would be fascinating. But I'm not super optimistic that we're going to get there anytime soon because it's just such a, it's such a massive data problem. No NFTs for my solar power. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that would be cool, right? I mean, like there are, there's lots of ways where this could work, but... Particularly right now, it seems like most of the crypto kind of enthusiasm is around making NFTs and 
kind of you know looping them up for you know all of all of uh, the wins uh, rather than uh, using it in ways that kind of help streamline boring kind of traditional classic commodity markets. It feels very low on the order of kind of enthusiastic prioritization. Yeah, sure. Why wouldn't you just want to commoditize a picture of Neon Cat or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Seems easier. Okay, well, that makes sense. I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, like, what are some of the most important things that governments could be doing right now to decarbonize without sort of running into those problems that you were talking about? So I think, I mean, I'm a big proponent of demand side rather than supply side, uh, uh, you know, uh, policies move to address it. So I'm, I just, full disclosure, I'm pro-pipeline and pro-carbon tax. And I think that you need a system that incorporates both of those that allows the system to work under a certain carbon price arrangement, but not add in all of these. It's going to be such a complicated, you know, political, you know, uh, issue to get right anyways, that we should be putting all of the political capital into the areas where we're going to have the most kind of broad uplift in application. And I think that's a carbon tax will in, depending on how it's kind of, you know, uh, parameterized, um, you're definitely going to hopefully have a system where coal is never cheaper than natural gas. I think you have you I think it would be good to have a system that kind of embeds that as like a base rule that for this particular reason <laughs> cool sucks <laughs> kills people. <laughs> yeah, I mean like but I but I think that's exactly it. I think that hopefully we'll have ways that we can, you know, decrease the demand for fossil fuels rather than decrease the supply as a means of increasing price. I think some price lift up, price uplift is necessary as you begin to kind of put on a fairer playing field, uh, you know, uh, sources of energy with carbon emissions and the costs associated with those and sources that don't. But I think that's kind of, you know, a very, very, but it's like the classic, you know, economist answer that, oh, carbon tax will fix this. I also think that rather than putting money towards uh, things like uh, EV purchase credits, I would much rather see that money plowed into figuring out what a truly kind of government sponsored charging grid could look like because because so I just I, my my wife and I were looking for a car recently and we were looking at EVs and we really really wanted to get an EV. I'm very enthusiastic. I think they are a fundamentally superior technology, but the choice uh like the model choice, the price the prices are still outrageous, particularly for anything larger than like a small sedan. Um, something more like a family car. The reason we were upgrading to a larger vehicle is that we have multiple car seats in the back and stuff now. That's really, really hard in a smaller car. So we wanted something like a, a bigger car. And some of those are coming down the line, you know, the F1, the Ford F-150 Lightning. And some of these examples do exist, but that's also like the way you'd want to spec it out, like an eighty dollars to $100,000 vehicle, which is really, really expensive. And it's tough to think about where you're going to charge it. Like I saw a Twitter conversation between like a couple like energy wonk types and they were like, I'm going to an Airbnb and I'm driving my EV. How do I charge it there? And it's like, that's a really good question. Um, usually if you're going to an airport or maybe a, a hotel, they'll have designated spots that'll have fast chargers or maybe depending on you are like a super, a Tesla supercharger. But most of the time, you know, I, I remember the, my favorite example of this. So when we used to live in a condo downtown Toronto, uh, there was a, there was like a Tesla in in our parking garage, but there were no outlets anywhere. So they literally had a massive extension cord that like went up the fire escape stairs no. and plugged into some <laughs> thing. And it was like this big letters like "Do not keep door open." It was like a fire break door. 
Um, but they're like, this is the only way you could charge a vehicle at your home. So I think it's going to be one thing to try and figure out how to get like charging infrastructure at, you know, 401 on routes. That seems like a relatively straightforward thing. You just slowly pour money on that and kind of build them out or whatever. So like rest stops in Ontario, just for people not from Yes, there. yes, sorry, rest <laughs> stops in Ontario. Basically along the 401, these big kind of government-owned kind of parking lot food dispensaries that will also eventually dispense electric power. It's much harder to think about how you're going to retrofit all of the parking garages in Toronto to have charging capability. Because that's a really, really, really big job. Um, not just for the impacts on the grid, but also just like the actual like digging that much wire into concrete basements is a big is a lot of work. Yeah, for sure. So are you guys going with a hybrid then or? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, I, I bought my last I bought my last gas guzzler. Um, but I do very much plan that the next one will be an EV. I'm, a, I'm personally, you know, no, no association, but I'm personally a big fan of some of the things that like Rivian put, is putting out. But I think I also think like I could very well, particularly if we move out of the city at some point, I could very easily see myself being a Ford F-150 Lightning owner. The thing's really cool. Um, but I'm hoping that you can get the prices down because I get at this stage, it's still, you know, we're not the most price sensitive people when it comes to buying a vehicle. And we were priced out of many of many of the options. Like we were looking at like the Tesla Model Xs and those were starting at $100,000 uh, for used. <laughs> like that was, I think the new ones are like 145,000 Canadian. Yeah. So, okay. So um, your two sort of things are high carbon tax. <laughs> or at least a, a stable and predictable carbon tax. I, I, I think that eventually we'll need to reach uh, a sufficiently high level, but I think more important than the level it's reached or even the pace at which we ramp there, I think we need to agree on a plan and get it out of the politics. Because at this stage, it's really like in Canada, as an example, like who knows what's going to happen if a new conservative leader comes in and they win an election and they scrap the carbon tax. And then all of a sudden, all of this business confidence or certainty that you're hoping to build out these industries, that's all gone. And then you come back in with a new liberal government and then they put it back on and that's off and on. And that, I think, is the worst possible scenario, because really what that does is I think it forces the, the easiest way for the system to respond and balance itself is going to be for there to be insufficient uh, fossil fuel supplies cause these deleterious kind of spikes in price and economic hardship and prompt occasional recessions, et cetera, et cetera. But I think without smart government planning, that's what the energy transition is going to look like is a continued series of these booms and busts. Whereas I think for everyone involved, it's going to be great for someone that like, like myself who writes and tries to analyze it and talk about it. Uh, it's going to be terrible for literally everyone else involved. <laughs> And I'd like to think that, you know, I'm still gonna have lots to talk about, even if we don't have a disastrous energy transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ideally, ideally not a disaster. That would be great. Um, so I'm like, in addition to like building more sort of electric um, infrastructure and pricing carbon stably, um, I'm curious about like, what you see for the future of I'm going to focus on Alberta specifically, because it seems like the province that really needs to build out renewables. So like what kinds of renewable energy sources or even not renewable, but just zero carbon would you uh, support? I mean, I think the Alberta, and I mean, my main focus in Alberta typically is oil sands and kind of the associated infrastructure and the economic importance of it. Um, so, I mean, there's one that I think that you can definitely, I mean, 
I would love to see Alberta build some nuclear power plants for baseload and all of these other things. But I'm going to stick away from the grid mostly. I think that we're mostly going down a path of phasing coal out, some, some gas, more renewables, kind of more interconnections with different provinces, et cetera, et cetera. So I can assume that that mostly progresses down a, down a path towards lower grid emissions. I think if we're looking, though, at what the future of Alberta's economy can look like when you're talking about something like the future of the oil sands. Um, this is where we start to talk about how could the oil sa- how could oil sands operations continue, um, either grow or just plateau around their current level under a, under a situation where you want to have net zero national emissions and not be viewed as exporting kind of a, a pollutant. Because um, I think the worry is that we're going to be, if we're not burning it, then other people are burning it. And that's still net net at the end of the day. I think this goes back to my question about, you know, who is, go- what is the composition of energy supply, fossil fuel energy supply going to look like down the path of the energy transition? There's a couple things about the Alberta oil sands that are uniquely beneficial in a scenario like this, again, aside from the higher emissions intensity. Um, so the higher emissions intensity, I think we're going to go down paths like this um, you know, oil sands cooperation initiative where you have uh, all the major producers signing on to build a CO2 trunk line and have uh, be able to basically sequester en masse uh, all the emissions associated with the oil sands. I do see that being the future of large industrial projects broadly, particularly when they're concentrated like the oil sands are. Those the, the Institute and oil sands mines, they're not moving anywhere. They're very, very large, and they also have massively long shelf life. For, for comparison, a, a U.S. shale oil well will produce the majority of its productive life in the first year. Normal oil production historically, when you think about like, you know, Beverly Hillbillies or kind of like the classic kind of, you know, gusher type wells, that is, you're looking at probably somewhere between like, you know, 7% declines a year. Basically, that's just as the natural pressure of the reservoir begins to decline, you get less and less, and then you need to pump more water in or steam or whatever to help kind of bolster that pressure so you get more oil out. In U.S. shale wells, basically, you're basically drilling, creating artificial well, then creating artificial pressure, and then basically trying to press it out you versus that 70% decline rate, you're seeing more like 80 to 90% decline rates in the first year for shale. So you need this constant churn of production and drilling and fracking and drilling and fracking in order not just to grow, but to stand still. The difference in the oil sands is that once you build an oil sands mine, for instance, it it's, it's more like a mine than an oil well. It's going to produce let's say, you know, the, the Fort Hills mine or, or any of the other mines that have recently been built out west, they're going to produce for 40, 50 years at roughly the same level with roughly no decline. Uh, there will need to be some additional capex, et cetera, to keep the thing running and keep everything, you know, smooth. But relative to, you know, U.S. shale production, it's much more front-laden capex heavy, which is why I do think you're not going to see the same kinds of builders. You're not going to see, it's unlikely that you're going to see a massive new oil sands mine sanctioned Probably, I you know, never say never, but it seems unlikely. Um, I think the growth that you're going to see from the oil sands is going to be from brownfield, so expansions of current existing uh, operations that can kind of tie in and plug into the same infrastructure and try and squeeze efficiencies out that way. I still do see probably upwards of another decade of growth of that type of oil sands. Um, and I think that's, the question is, how can you do that at a, at a lower carbon intensity? And I think that's where you start to get both the kind of carbon sequestration 
element, but you're also the, I, I find one of the, one of the ironic ways that they're looking at reducing emissions intensity in the oil sands. So the classic uh, in situ or instead of mining, you basically produce it underground, you bump a bunch of steam down there and then you pump out the oil that's liquefied basically in place. Um, that's typically called SAG-D or steam assisted gravity drainage. Takes a lot of steam. And that's part of the reason the oil sands is very emissions intensive is that you need a lot of energy. It's normally natural gas or pet coke that's actually producing. Is that also why it uses a lot of water? Um... It is. Yep. It is absolutely why it uses a lot of water. Um, on the oil, on the in-situ side, because of that, and then on the oil sand side for, for treating, and that's where you get all the tailings from, basically kind of getting the oil out. The thing that they're looking at doing, I think one, something that's going to be a big change going forward for the oil sands is something called solvent-assisted steam gravity drainage. And that's basically where you actually put little bits of other hydrocarbons into the same thing instead of just water, and that changes the chemical composition, so you need much less energy to extract the same amount of oil. So an irony here being that by putting more oil in the oil well, you reduce the amount of emissions of getting the oil out of the oil well. So I think it's going to be kind <laughs> of a, I think it's a, it's a narrative confusing uh, solution to, um, to reduce emissions intensity. But I think that's generally what it's going to look like. And I personally, I think this is, I think this is where politics and preference comes in. I would rather Canada remain a predominant producer of, of crude oil as we kind of cross the bridge of energy transition so that you know we don't we're not just relying on OPEC and Russia and everyone else that won't have the same type of regulatory oversight of those barrels is not going to have the same kind of security and political implications uh, for Canada and NATO allies and everything else um, so I think my, my my politics here are basically that we should be the most responsible, largest producer of oil that we can until no one demands oil anymore. Yeah, my thing with that, though, is like, doesn't that screw us in terms of reaching net zero by 2030? Like, if everybody's making that choice. So I think, I think there's two things here. One is... Do national net zero targets make sense in this in this thing? I think that's a big question. I think the way we've structured our uh, kind of international policies around this, they do. Uh, so we've made commitments. And I think that's going to be a problem we're going to need to face down the line. But I think it's I would I would like to see a scenario where Canada is producing five million barrels or six million barrels of crude and consuming basically none of it. You know. There's all of these bitumen beyond combustion and all these other things that people are talking about, other ways of using oil. Because even after we stop using oil for you know, most of what we're using it for, it'll still have other uses, particularly once the price is driven down. You know, Oil started as lighting fuel, and then we got into realizing it can drive cars. So I think it's, it won't, it's not the first time, it won't be the last time we figure out new ways of using it. But I agree. I mean, this is, this is obviously going to be the challenge, is it's going to be hard to, t to square our net zero uh, emissions targets with what I believe is the right choice of, of kind of rising oil sands production, except through cooperation around things like the CO2 trunk line and other ways of, of doing it. But we need kind of strong, stringent and predictable uh, carbon you know, uh, pricing and policy structures, because the, you know, the small assessments I've seen for the trunk line and associated you know, carbon sequestration, it's not like $50 billion. Like these are, these are really, really big projects. It's basically like building one and a half new oil sands mines just to sequester the carbon. So that I think is, is I think the question increasing will be what that looks like and, and who pays for it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, 
I don't know. I think it becomes a bit of a problem because when you have like big stores of natural gas that you're producing internally, doesn't that create political, at the very least political um, and maybe also economic challenges to decarbonizing our consumption as well, right? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. I totally, I totally hear that. I think this is where it's the, the, the challenge is going to be that we're going to need to actively take the more expensive path in moments of non-crisis in order to have the fallback that when we really need it, um, it's not going to not be there. Because uh, I think the worst case scenario is we transition or partially transition down a line of, of kind of, you know, uh, you know decarbonization that's what we're talking about. Um, but then you end up in a scenario where you have an especially freezing winter or something that short circuits the system and then undoes a decade plus of pol- of kind of policy and political will that's been built up. Because climate change movement has done a tremendous, while politically toxic, absolutely no challenge there, um, has done a tremendous kind of job at driving that median voter and kind of where where that policy is. And I just don't want to see that backslide. And I think inevitably that backslide is going to come when good or bad faith actors kind of point out that massive economic hardship or the fact that, you know, you're all the pipes in your house burst because, you know, Premier X didn't allow you to have a gas line to your house or whatever, right? It, it becomes very easy to point fingers and, and kind of create the blame game. I think that's a challenge. I'm trying to avoid the blame game and it's not going to happen because it's obviously going to be politically toxic all the way through, but I'm going to pretend that there's a nice middle ground uh, that we can all agree on and kind of optimize the path through. And I'm sure everyone's going to take it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard because as we have more and more disasters, especially going into the harder years of climate change, everything's going to be more politicized and there won't be any right answers. It'll be like, well, this town was destroyed because so-and-so did this. But if they had done it a different way, then maybe something else would have happened that would have been disastrous. And there's like no right answers right now. This is how I'm feeling. Yeah, 100 percent. I think and I, I think so. Two things. One, if let's say Europe had already been a decade further down the line and had decarbonized more of its gas grid, then this wouldn't have been as big a problem. Right. Yeah. Europe. Right. I mean, uh, <laughs> or I think anyone I think I think anyone if they've transitioned down and you have less dependence on that fossil fuel and the price spikes is less of an issue. But it's a little bit of luck, honestly, where those shocks are going to come, because by definition, they're not really expected. Um, the other example I think that's really interesting is recently there were the massive, the, the atmospheric river out in BC and these massive flooding. Um, you saw, I was watching it for kind of my line of work, mostly around the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and how that was shut down preemptively. Um, and I think you know, we can all agree or disagree here, but I think that the Trans Mountain team did a great job at managing how that uh, kind of disaster hit. And there wasn't any associated spills or any kind of, it was close. No, you know, no doubt about it, but all the kind of right steps were taken. Now, the, 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 what happened was that we lost upwards of 300,000 barrels a day um, of export capacity during that period when it was shut off. Now, if we had already had the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline up and running and depending on it, our dependence on that line would have been three times larger than it is right now. So when we think about, for instance, having the flexibility of, of kind of being able to uh, put our crew directly to the West Coast versus sending all of it south along traditional borders, um, that flexibility also comes with increased dependence on potentially kind of fraught 
you know, export paths. So I think that it's, again, I, I'm a maximalist in all of these things and a kind of a lover of redundancy. I'd love to never be operating at like, you know, the nice edge of pipeline capacity out of the Western Canadian Centenary Basin. I would love to never be operating. Yeah, but aren't companies just going to put as much, like, aren't they going to maximize any level of infrastructure? So if we expand, you know, companies just going to expand to meet whatever the infrastructure is, right? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Like when you move into a bigger house and you just end up uh, accruing more kipple to fill it. <laughs> I, I always thought the example was like the goldfish gross the size of the tank or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. um, I think in this, I mean, let's say we had tomorrow a million barrels a day of additional pipeline capacity of Western Canada. I don't think that that would, even in five years, incentivize an additional million barrels of um, production. I think for the same reasons that I was talking about earlier, that there's a whole host of things that make it less likely that we're going to see the, the, the pace of growth of oil sands that we've seen in the past, mostly because that's not the type of project that the oil industry itself really likes to take on right now because of all of the uncertainty with the energy transition. Yeah, but like infrastructure is fed into like economic modeling in terms of like it does drive investments to a certain degree. It does. It does. And I've and I have for the past how long I've been doing this, years and years and years talked about the, you know, the 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 downside of insufficient pipeline capacity and eroding investment intentions, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're in a position where we actually have enough pipeline capacity. And we're going to have the Trans Mountain expansion line start up and we're going to have all this extra and we're probably going to have all that extra for a decent number of years. Now, that means that oil by rail is probably mostly a thing of the past for the next while. Does that mean my via rail trips will be faster? <laughs> I, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. But no, I think it's I mean, this is the this is the challenge is that I think we're going to need I mean, the the what is it like the a classic like Obama refrain of like an all of the above energy solution. And I'm like a, I'm a big devotee of that line of thinking is that we don't just need, we need more renewable energy production capacity than is currently on the books, way more. And we need massive investments and, and breakthroughs in geothermal where, you know, a great uh, energy transition uh, kind of energy justice and social justice element is that a lot of the ways that people are talking about increasing the viability of geothermal is by fracking it and using the same crews and techniques that we're fracking for natural gas in the uh, in the geothermal space. So you could theoretically have a way of kind of offsetting that and maintaining some of the employment and kind of dependencies that have been built up there. Yeah, it's super funny to me that uh, <laughs> so we just have um, our very left-leaning uh, friend Robbie on the podcast and. Both of you are super pro geothermal. <laughs> I mean, geothermal is really cool, right? I think it's. You probably disagree on almost everything else, but geothermal. <laughs> probably, probably. Geothermal is really cool, and I think it's. I think it's. It's uniquely positioned. It's. I like it for a lot of the same reasons that I actually like carbon sap, carbon capture and sequestration, which is it's an, a big, heavy industrial system that I'm used to tracking and understanding and following. There's a lot of crossover, and the reason that I like it. I think a lot of, you know, former pipe fitters and, you know, rig hands in the oil space will also be able to find employment opportunities there. And I think that will, again, go one more step towards you know, ameliorating some of the toxicity in the debate. Uh, if, if people that are currently economically and existentially tied to the fossil fuel economy, if they can see any life beyond it, because right now, I think 
both sides are capitalizing on that fear and that worry uh, about not having a viable exit path for these these people that are just just wanting to you know feed their children. Rory, I agree with everything you say, and I hate it because I just want us all to be carbon zero tomorrow. Like <laughs> 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 think you make perfect sense. Damn it. <laughs> for me, it's there's I. You know, we had talked a little while ago and you had asked me to kind of mention some of my my thoughts around, you know, climate change deniers that I run into. Um, and I think that the issue is that I have, it's hard, uh, but I often, I try and get the best out of everyone. I, Kristen, we have many conversations at which we are diametrically opposed, but I think <laughs> I get a lot out of our conversations and, knowledge, and your knowledge um, and kind of other conversations you're having. So I have liked to have conversations with you know, environmental environmentalists and law professors and rig hands and many of those people, particularly in the oil and gas space, do either, you know, are lukewarmists or outright climate change deniers or whatever. But I truly do also think that they have an immense knowledge of these energy systems on which we currently rely. And my hope with what I'm doing is that I can have conversations like this uh, with people that I would say are not natural allies with the oil and gas sector. Um, I think it would potentially be fair to say. Um, but also <laughs> on the other side, I think people, you know, what I would call kind of oil and gas boosters, you know, people that downplay risks, downplay externalities. I am a firm centrist, both politically, but I also think that there's not enough of that in the middle right now, because there's a lot on either side. And I, and I think there are too few venues and too few people trying to bring the best of both worlds. And it's hard because, again, everyone likes to yell at me. Um, but, <laughs> but I do think that there's like, you know, sometimes I, I worry that the people looking to decarbonize our economies know very little about the carbon economy itself. And I think that's the challenge is you, you don't know what you don't know yet in many cases. And I think that increases the likelihood of these crises evolving. That's actually exactly why we wanted to bring you on. So I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I think that's really a, an important message. It's just like we all need to talk to each other more. It's really easy for me to be like, well, we should just stop producing oil yesterday. And then for people who are doing it to be like, no, that won't work. And I'll be like, I don't care. I don't want to hear why it won't work. But it's actually like super important to hear why it won't work. <laughs> yeah, I'm also curious, uh, Roy, because I think a lot of our listeners, um, I think it's probably fair to say don't talk to a lot of climate deniers don't like experience that a lot in their lives. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about like what the things are that they talk about. What are some common myths that they would spout and uh, as well, like some maybe some fears and anxieties that they carry with them? All of this is very multifaceted. And I would say there are the common themes you see uh, would be pivoting to talking about, you know, we don't have, a, you know, because of the steep discounting uh, that you need to engage in for 50, 100 year ec ec economic modeling. So much of the economic trade-off between or the impact of climate change has to do with that discount rate that you choose. Um, and some people choose a big, a big discount rate because of big uncertainty, and some people choose a low discount rate, et cetera. But you can make a lot but of the discount rate of the future. I don't know that people will necessarily understand what that means. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. And the, the idea, you know, the, this whole idea of like time value of money, and you'll need to, you know, a dollar today is worth a lot more than a dollar a hundred years from now. And in much the same way, when we think of a 
billion dollars of cost today, that's a much bigger cost than a billion dollars of cost in the future. If that discount rate is higher, it's even less money in the future. So the idea is that if fossil fuels cause increase, we'll go back, you know, utilitarian kind of language. If carbon, if, if burning fossil fuels, because it either gets you from A to B or heats your home or whatever else, if that gives you utility today, that's much more valuable than any potential harm it brings in 50 years. That would be a very classic kind of way of framing it. And I think there is, this is where the challenge is. I think there is something to that. I think there's, because of these, the uncertainty bounds around the pace of climate uh, climate change and the way in which all of this is going to manifest, we have uncertainties on both sides. We have uncertainties on the downside, we have uncertainties on the upside. All of it's particularly that far out, very, very uncertain. So you can see how, particularly if you come to that discussion with a with a you know a particular political prior, you'll choose you know a really, really high discount rate, for instance. And then all of a sudden, oh wow, look. All of this can make a lot more sense and um, alleviating energy poverty by building a coal plant in Africa today, uh, you know, will we'll have a much better impact. And I think in many cases, you know, re trying to electrify an, a, you know, uh, a group of people uh, providing grid, grid ready electricity will probably, even if it's done by coal, I think there's an argument to be made that it will have a, a bigger net positive impact in the grand scheme than if they weren't electrified in any way, or they were, let's say 10% of that population was electrified through off-grid solar. Yeah, I think it depends on how many people are gonna die from climate change, but. <laughs> well, exactly, I, I completely, well, exactly, I completely agree. Um, and I think often the other thing is that the, you know, the people that are the most energy poor today are also the ones that are going to be the most hard, hard hit by climate change. But it also is in many cases, you know, the, the unpopular thing asked is like, is it, is it our job to make that choice for them? Do they want, would they rather give their children, you know, heat and electricity today, even if it risks something down the line? And I think these aren't easy questions, but I, I am generally of the mind that we should be trying to broadly de decarbonize the economy, particularly in advanced countries where these trade-offs aren't black and white. And we have, you know, maybe a 10% maybe a higher cost instead of black and white, but you're never not going to have power. So I think it's it's hard in some of these instances to say like off-grid solar in many instances just isn't going to provide the type of power grid that the West developed on. It's just not the same type of energy, the same it's going to give you lighting, maybe some maybe some Wi-Fi, but it's not going to turn, you know, an industrial facility um in the same way. So I think it's these are these are these are the challenges that we have to make. But to go back to this question of like the different flavors and vintages of, of climate change denial. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other things, let me let me just think here. So, um, you know, you you have the outright, you know, don't believe the the prevailing science. There is no connection. You know, I heard I saw one the other day that was basically like, you know, uh, carbon is plant food. Thus, you know, I, I one I often see is um, if you go back to like the crustaceous period or something like the dinosaur periods. Uh, there was much higher CO2 and you had a much larger kind of megafauna and kind of many more plants and, and biomass cover than you have today. Thus, obviously, it's actually better for the planet because it's going to make our ecosystems more dense, which like obviously we can start to unravel that pretty quickly. Like maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's not great to warm the planet that that much in a hundred years when that happened over like millions and you know all of this. Also know, like the continents were totally different back. A hundred percent. I mean it's like they, I, again it's not easy to kind of unwind, but I think it's 
I think the I think the important thing here is I think a lot of it is also quite motivated reasoning. Uh, I think many people have chosen for whatever reason, politics, kind of tri- you know, political tribal identity, what have you, they've decided ahead of time that they're against climate change or against or, or, or they don't believe climate change for whatever reason, and they're going to find whatever rationale makes sense for them. I think it's in those cases, I think my experience has been that like the harder you press against those people, it's not going to do anything, right? Um, so I think it's I think part of it is like I like to try and value what knowledge and expertise they can bring regardless of their political priors, whether or not that's how an oil sands facility works or where to get good data on a pipeline or whatever. I think a lot of these people do have and I, and I I've honestly found them, you know, the the language I, and, and the way people engage with each other on in a lot of these topics is also very toxic. Um, and I've often just found a lot of luck by like just like, OK, let's ease up a little bit. Let's just talk to each other like people. Um, we're obviously not going to agree on a whole host of things. Um, like I'm probably, and Kristen, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm probably the most, you know, right leaning person in my kind of broad Toronto friend group for a whole host of reasons. I am a communist relative to most of my kind of industry <laughs> connections. Um, so I think like for me, that's my evidence that that's, that for me feels like I'm doing something right. It it's dispiriting often. Cause it just feels like there's, you know, no way we're ever going to bridge this. But I do think slowly, slowly, slowly we can start to get there. Um, but I think most of it is around it. It shifts between outright climate change denial and um, kind of this discount rate uh, questions and whether or not doing good now is better is more important than offsetting potential future um, consequences, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's that ebbs and flows as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's it, it, it's multivariate. And I think everyone has their own little. Uh, suite of of things that they believe just like they they've just found that and I think in many cases I think people on the left will just say like the oil sands are bad everyone I know says the oil sands are bad uh, so let me find a bunch of reasons why the oil sands are bad and then you kind of create this mental dictionary and you say okay uh, you know you've got tailings ponds you've got pipeline leaks you've got you know et cetera et cetera et cetera whereas on the right or the kind of, let's say the broad, you know, let's say oil sands booster kind of community, it's, you know, economic jobs, largest indigenous employer, um, you know, all of these things. They also have the same suite of, of, of reasons that they've built up and they're ready to deploy at any moment. And they, many of them, again, these are very, very smart people. Uh, they can go toe to toe with you. And it's very exhausting <laughs> um, because they actually have a lot of good points um, even if you don't agree with the overall kind of conclusions that they would be proposing. And again, I think that's, I like to learn something from everyone here. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges is going to be how do you replace the really great middle class jobs of the oil sands? Um, and I mean, even like surrounding refineries. I also don't think if like oil sands development happened in 2021, like I actually don't think they'd be great jobs. I think it had more to do with what the political climate and like labor organizing was like when these jobs became middle class jobs. But it that is going to be a big debate. I would say that I mean, may I push back on you just a touch there? But uh, I, I do think the other thing that just happened was I think it was a massive, overwhelming construction boom. And I think the other thing, one thing I've been following right now is the the erosion of the relationship between oil prices and the Canadian dollar that. Historically, like when we're at $85 a barrel for Brent right now, historically, the Canadian dollar, like if we were back pre-2014, 
the Canadian dollar would be above 90 cents, kind of approaching par against the US dollar. But because now we can get this kind of cash flow uplift, like a lot of our oil companies right now are making more money because they're producing larger volumes of crude and they're making more money for each barrel, you're not seeing the massive influx of investment capital that was mostly foreign financed, externally financed, that was kind of inflating the currency along the way. So the benefit there is that it's kind of, you know, you used to feel talk about the Dutch disease in Canada. That isn't happening to the same degree anymore. And so, but the downside is that we all, if we ever need to go fill up our gas tank, we don't get the same currency insulation that we once did. So we're now also getting an additional oil prices, uh, gasoline prices in Canada are at or near their highest point ever. Um, and that's mostly because of two factors. The one factor is that uh, both the kind of the, the structural carbon taxation will just incrementally increase. So that's expected. But we didn't really notice it when oil prices were really, really low. Now that oil prices are really high and you're seeing, you know, a buck 60, a buck 65 a liter for gasoline in, in Toronto or, or out east, you know, that people all of a sudden, I think that's when you start to get blowback. People almost know nothing about any commodity markets. They know the price of gasoline. And all they'll know is that it's higher. And that is a very real manifestation of inflation, uh, an erosion of um, kind of, you know, you know, household purchasing power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they're going to look for someone to blame. Yeah, but that has to do with the fact that we've structured people's entire lives around it, right? And we have transitioned before. We will again. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to jump in here because I feel like you two could go for hours. Um, Probably. Do, do we have do you like we're already like on almost an hour and a half. I feel like Rory, I don't know how much time you planned to spend with us. <laughs> I should, yeah, I should probably yeah. I should probably pop off here soon. Um, but I think I think at, at, at the end, I think my, my main message to everyone and I, I say this to everyone on both sides, hashtag both sides, um, is that this is going to be really, really hard. Um, and in my humble opinion, kind of the, the level of toxicity is only going to make it harder, both for people. I think it's just emotionally exhausting for anyone that's actually trying to do the work and trying to tell the story and figure out how this is all going to go. But it's also just it, it, it puts so much emotion in it that you get more and more and more of that motivated reasoning. So you you almost, you know, you increasingly cut off the possibility of compromise because compromise in and of itself becomes a bad thing. Um, and I think that's the issue that we're facing increasingly right now. I think even many of the people that I know out West don't even like the, you know, the current leadership of the Conservative Party because they see it as too centrist or too moderate on carbon taxation. Um, and I think that becomes a problem because you wonder it's like- It's so if insane. It's something that you Chicago came up with. It's a right wing <laughs> solution. Ah! <laughs> but this, again, Kristen, it's a it's a moving target, right? It's the, the 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 when the the Overton window on policy is shifted, and the motivated reason just sets in. And I once upon a time, Newt Gingrich thought carbon taxes were great, and now they're the devil. And I think that's unfortunately. Yeah, the trouble is though, like I don't know this both sidesing. It seems to be like it seems to be this presumption that the left is making it more toxic as much as the right is. And that's just not true on so many policy areas, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I would agree. I mean, you look at the Republican debate on like voter rights um, in the States is a great example of this. Like what the hell is progressive left supposed to do when the center has shifted so far to the right that you come across as extreme by just saying what scientists are saying. Rant over. I don't, I don't disagree <laughs> with you, but I think that, what I have chosen for myself is that I, I take a bit of the politics now as a given and I just try and figure out what can be done there because I am not big enough 
to drive the politics materially one way or the other. All I can do is try and point out when either side or both sides, hashtag both sides, uh, is, you know, just making a verifiably false claim. And I think that that's the best I can do. It's kind of like, you know, I feel like fact checking has become anathema to everything now, but like, my hope is to just try and we used to talk about ourselves in, in the economics department is, is bullshit detectors and just kind of like, you know, I can't tell you exactly how it's going to go, but I can tell you that's not true. And I think in many cases, both sides do not have a good enough understanding of the problem that we are looking at to know fully and contextually what is just false, like verifiably false in the moment, because I try and focus all day, every day, I'm trying to figure out what the current state is, and half the time I don't know. Um, so I can only imagine if your job is actually trying to weave narratives on top of it for political gain, you just be, there's so much data out there that it becomes very, very easy to cherry pick. And I think that's increasingly what we're seeing. And the smart, motivated, accomplished people on both sides, I think doing a disservice to the reality on the ground and the politics on the ground. And I think while we don't, I don't always agree with you or anyone else, um, I do think that we don't, so often we just, we just stop talking. And I think that is mostly what I'm trying to tilt. That's the windmill I'm tilting against. So if I'm hearing a takeaway from you, it's that people who care about taking climate action should really put some time to invest in learning about how energy systems work so they can have these debates. Yes, agreed, agreed. I, I think it's, you know, understand if, if you're a climate change campaigner, understand thy enemy in a real way. Understand the value and the cost that it brings, because I think that's going to make you much more situationally aware of the roadblocks, but also the speed bumps. And I think we're going to have many, many, many of those over the next decade. And I would personally love all of the people directing policy and activism to just have at least thought about those risks before they manifest. Because a lot of people kind of pretended like this European energy you know, crisis came out of nowhere. People have been screaming about this for ages um, in, in the <laughs> energy kind of analyst community. But it's, it's not like a shock. We didn't know it was coming this year, but we could see that the system was becoming increasingly fragile. And I think the system, as we, as we strive for getting the best system we can with the least number of dollars invested, I think we, we risk kind of making more and more of our systems fragile when at a time where we need to be making them much more robust. Well, and that's, that's my takeaway from, from this conversation is that we just need to talk to each other more. <laughs> it doesn't matter like <laughs> what side of the spectrum you're on. The more people talk to each other, I think the more we understand each other, the easier it is to come up with solutions that work for everyone. And right now in the political landscape and in the even just the activism landscape versus the industrial landscape, nobody's talking to each other. They're just talking in their own little echo chambers. Yeah. So I... I really appreciate that you came on to to talk to us and and to kind of fill that that middle ground. I guess the next time we have a guest uh, that's a little bit more right leaning, we'll have to go all the way and just bring on like a mega Trump supporter <laughs> and hear what they have to say. And, and rather than Rory, who might consider voting conservative but usually doesn't even. <laughs> 
Might maybe. It's always it's it's always it's always a question. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's I think it's really important that that more people listen to each other. And I know it's difficult for people on the left because we have no representation in government at all, really anywhere. It feels like, but it also means that we have to work with the people that are in power and that are voting for those people. It, it's something that nobody's going to be convinced by screaming at each other if they're already convinced of the points that they're yelling, you know? So the only thing we'll add on just to what you exactly said there is the, that's actually one thing that the left and right have entirely in common is both think they have no representation in government right now. <laughs> and I think that's actually like, like when you said that, I was like, that's all I hear on the other side as well. And I think that is when you, when you feel like you're not represented, you feel like you're not kind of uh, either bound or kind of um, you don't feel like you're represented in those conclusions in that policy. And I would say rightly or wrongly, both sides feel that same grievance, which just again, is a terrible kind of starting point because then you're both not going to agree on the outcome and complain about the refing along the way. <laughs> Russian judges are unfair. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. No, I see that. And I think that's that's part of why everyone feels so disconnected right now is nobody feels represented. So woof, what a problem. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what an intense conversation. Thank you for coming, Rory. I didn't I didn't expect it to go this long. You had a lot of really amazing points. I learned a lot, which is to say, like, Considering the amount that Kristen and I talk about these issues, to bring on somebody with a fresh perspective is actually really wonderful, even if we obviously aren't going to 100% agree on everything. Everything you said made perfect sense and was delivered so intelligently and well, I have a lot to chew on um, <laughs> now that I'm going to be going away to think about this. And I I, re I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No worries. I'm always, I'm definitely happy to join and I encourage you to check out my, my sub stack, Commodity Context. Yeah, yeah. Do you have uh, Do you have anything to to plug? <laughs> I mean, so my the I'm going to be publishing more and more on Commodity Context, which is my Substack, um, commoditycontext.substack.com, uh, and that over the course of this year will eventually have more of a professional offering on top of it. Right now, it's very thematic and bloggy. It's going to increasingly have more kind of formal reporting, as I used to do in my Scotiabank days. Um, and over the, over the next year or two, I hope to build out a much broader um, research and consulting practice, uh, very much trying to operationalize, monetize, if you will, uh, this, this niche that I see, which is most, I used to manage uh, research budgets at Scotiabank uh, in the commodity space, and these were extraordinarily expensive, like tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of subscription budgets. Uh, my goal is to provide a bit of an outlet that people can, that are interested, earnestly want to engage in this space to have access to good, well-researched, data-driven, uh, you know, uh, commentary uh, without literally needing kind of a corporate expense card. And that's that's hopefully <laughs> what I will bring more of over the next year. Love it. Are you on Twitter? Can people can people find your hot I takes? am on Twitter. Uh, oh, Rory is so on Twitter. I'm very on Twitter. <laughs> Too much on Twitter. Uh, but yes, uh, at Rory underscore Johnston uh, with a T. Uh, and uh, and yes, I am mostly just tweeting charts and uh, engaging in lots of, I mean, my, my focus right now is mostly the Canadian and US oil sectors, both oil sands and shale, uh, as well as some global modeling. But uh, sometime, sometime we can just come back and just discuss the price of oil because I could easily do an hour and a half on just that alone. <laughs> 
Great. Well, our listeners love charts, so I'm sure love it. <laughs> everyone, everyone can find you there. I love it. Well, okay. If everyone liked today's episode, they should check out the Harbinger Media Network, which features shows like The Progress Report, which is, I think, an Alberta-focused Canadian show that talks about how we can move forward together. And I think that's a really good one to shout out on this particular episode. I want to thank Rory again for joining us. This has been really, really great conversation. And everyone can find more of us by, well, you can go to Twitter for us too, at Pullback Podcast, <laughs> or you can just tune into our next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. 